Hello, hello. Welcome to another 40 Guard Labs Threat Intelligence Podcast. My name is Jonas, and today I'm joined again by my good friend and fellow researcher, Amar Lakani. Amar, how are you doing these days? I am living the dream, Jonas, as always, living the dream and doing better than I deserve. That's so good to hear. And as the year approaches its final days, I want to use this opportunity to talk about playbooks. Playbooks is something we are familiar from sport, for example. Um, Let's take American football. You have offensive playbook, defensive playbooks, certain actors with different roles. We have coaches who tell the strategies, the tactics, etc. But in the cyber world, there are a lot of threat actors out there who have also their tactics and follow certain procedures. What kind of playbooks have uh, have you come across so far, Amor? Well, I I love your reference of NFL football because you said, let's take American football. And I say, let's take the only real football that's out there. And I know a lot of people are going to be like angry at me, but I am a big fan of NFL football. And it is a playbook in any sports. You have playbooks on basically how to react and how to act and how to get scores and how to defend, you know, your, your team and your, your, your field. And that, that is no different from a cyber playbook as well. It is a map, a map on how you can basically use to attack and defend your critical assets and and your information technology systems. So we call it the adversary playbook, where we have different kind of ideas behind it. And I think the main goal of a playbook is to organize the tools, the techniques, the procedures from certain adversaries and map them into an industry standard. So not only do we have a good overview about certain threat actors are following in their attacks, but also we have the capabilities of sharing the information because in threat intelligence, I think one of the most important aspects is the sharing part because the beautiful thing about sharing stuff is it usually doubles in value, Um, not like money when you share it, you have only half of it, but in information, you actually double the value because two people have the information now. And these kind of programs can can make a difference in the end. So, for example, MITRE, the industry standard for um, mapping these playbooks is something which we are focusing on a lot. And there are different stages. So before jumping in, could you quickly elaborate what kind of stages there are in MITRE, Amor? Well, Jonas, even before we kind of get to that point, uh, I, I liked a couple of examples that you said on um, on a, having an adversarial playbook, because as th- as threat researchers, when we share information about a about a specific threat actor, sometimes it's very difficult to you know, articulate exactly what that threat actor is doing from an attack perspective, because they have multiple techniques that they use. They have techniques like initial access, which may include drive-by downloads, compromised websites, maybe using stolen credentials, network access credentials. Um, They may use, obviously, uh, phishing attacks, (laughs) one of the most common techniques. What happens after that? Uh, What are the techniques that they use to gain and stay in a system? You know, 
basically what do they do to stay stay persistent as we say as we say and then what do they do after that how do they get data off the network and so this is what a playbook kind of generates it gives you that map of what these threat actors and the common techniques they use with different types of malware and when we're talking about the miter attack framework the miter attack framework is almost exactly that is it categorizes a lot of different categories such as initial access um data uh, data exfiltration, um, persistence, um, a whole bunch of different categories. And what a playbook does is it basically lets us fill in a grid, fill in like the different boxes on the techniques that are being used in each one of those pivot points in an attack. And we can take the combination of each one of those pivot points and we can uh, group it all together and tie it to a specific threat actor. What that lets us do is it basically lets us follow that threat actor on how they attack, how they change and modify their attacks, and perhaps where who they go after from an industry or even a specific target standpoint sometimes. Yes, and I think you bring up a very interesting point, the attribution part. So based on certain patterns which we see and certain techniques, it's something which we try to achieve and we can make some attribution from these patterns towards certain kind of threat actors. But I think it's also something which gets a little bit underestimated more often than not, because not only is it very difficult to make attribution, but also these guys are not stupid. So they try to trick us and try to lead us onto the wrong path with obfuscating certain kind of attacks or putting certain patterns in there, which we might already know from other threat actors and they try to make our life much more difficult with these kind of um, attributes. You know, attribution has always been difficult in cyber attacks. You can come from anywhere, anytime, and it's really hard to pinpoint who the attacker is. And those attackers, the ones that do it well, are definitely going to try and hide as much as they can uh, who they are. They're going to try and use evasion techniques to make sure that not only do you not know who they are, if you do figure out a, a pattern or a scent, you may be, you may be led down the wrong path. <laughs> you know, you may be thinking it's uh, group B while group A is actually getting, a, getting away with the attack. And so attribution itself becomes very difficult. But when you follow these playbooks and when you follow attack over attack and you start seeing the same techniques over and over again, what you can start at least logically saying is that, hey, these attacks are related. If they're using the same code base, if they're using the same, um, you know, same types of uh, uh, patterns, they're using the same type of malware, they're using the same type of uh, MO from, uh, from like asking for ransomware or the amount or the same Bitcoin addresses, then at some point you can start putting together, hey, this is related and it's possibly coming from the same same person and of course what these attackers do is they make it really difficult every time they write a piece of code anytime they're distributing malware they're basically making their code encrypted they're hiding their code they're using multiple evasion techniques you just can't bring up a debugger and like start looking at the code a, a lot of times we have to like create custom uh, you know custom tools to to start like reading the code and start figuring out what it does and uh, it, it's difficult it's uh, really difficult and it takes a lot of time and knowledge because you have to anticipate how the attack and how the code is going to react not only in a normal system but how it's going to react in a system that's analyzing the code itself yes definitely and, and coming back to the 
if, if you look close enough, I think sometimes you are able to detect certain patterns which are just very likely which lead to certain kind of attackers. Thinking back of uh, of my early years, I played ice hockey for 10 years and coming back to sports here is no matter for which team you played, you always had a coach and certain coaches, they just had a certain style which they really liked and tried to teach their team. So for example, when we pay, played the uh, power play, which is a one man advantage, you had a different style than other coaches. And if you were just a neutral observer you could probably spot which team you are playing for even if you didn't know who the coach was and i think in cybersecurity, it's sometimes similar that whoever these hackers are attacking they just have some preferences they have their techniques they are doing what have been uh, working in the past and as we all know everyone has his own style a little bit and if you look close enough you might be able to spot it, but again, it's something which is very difficult and needs a lot of time. So we have seen that as well. Uh, our researchers um, invest so much time in these playbooks, um, one which will be released very, very soon, actually next week. And it was about um, remote access Trojan based on JavaScript, where, as you mentioned, there were many, many lines the uh, obfuscated and it took us for a very long time to figure out what does it actually mean how does the code actually work and we need to build custom tools to deobfuscate the whole malware to understand okay this is how it looks like without all these hidden patterns and what we found out in the end is a pretty good idea about the whole threat actor for example how does he achieve initial access. And of course, phishing emails is something which is very common these days, but phishing emails are not always the same. For example, some people prefer Word files where others prefer PDFs. And some threat actors, they try to be even a step ahead. And instead of sending the emails directly, they approach certain agencies who are trusted by their clients and try to hack them first. So. Even though spear phishing in general is usually the main initial access threat actor, threat vector, there are many ways how to gain access on this journey. Yeah, not only are there many ways to try and gain access to the journey, as you said, but you have to, as, as a security practitioner, you really have to kind of have that map to figure out what the, you know, what the possible destinations are so you can be prepared to fight against them. Uh, and that that's really what we do. You know, you you brought up uh, another sports analogy. So I guess let me let me quote one of my favorite coaches, Vince Lombardi. He said something like, perfection is not attainable, but if you chase it for long enough, then you can possibly catch it. And, you know, I really believe that in cybersecurity and why some of these uh, threat playbooks are so valuable is because we don't know all the attacks that attackers may, 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 may you know, implement. But we also don't know maybe all the details behind the attacks. So even if we have like an attacker using a technique, you know, I don't understand all the techniques that are out there. I have to like learn about that. I have to research it. I have to like play around it with a, play around with it in a lab. But once I do that, I have a more better 
understanding of maybe how I can stop that. You know, a playbook is kind of my guide, my map on where the gold is and where I can stop that attack. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, I've always said malware can hide. Uh, attackers are really good at hiding their malware, whether they're encrypting code, using evasion techniques, uh, so we can't read uh, read the code correctly. But at one point, it has to run. So malware can hide, but it has to run at one point. And when it runs, that's a perfect opportunity to catch that attack, whether it's in memory, whether it's fileless malware, wh whether it's on disk. But it's a perfect opportunity to examine that malware. And once that happens, right, then you can start gathering those techniques and you can start creating that map of wh what happens. And, you know, what happens if, uh, you know, A is executed? What path does it go down? What happens if we try and stop B? What path does it go down? And I think that's really important in playbooks. Yes, in the end, they can definitely make a, a big difference because as usually in life, the one who has a plan and knows how to react when certain kind of events happens is usually better prepared. And as we always say, 80% of the success is planning ahead and being prepared for these kinds of events and incidents. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the playbook that you had mentioned uh, coming out, I found I found that pretty, pretty interesting. And I know we're, we're going to have it documented on our website, but I found it really interesting that it was a JavaScript based attack. And what's interesting about that is JavaScript, it's really overlooked on uh, when attackers when attacks come out using javascript because they're really powerful you can't really turn off javascript anymore the internet pretty much breaks if you turn off javascript for the most part because every website starts using that a lot of mail email clients you talked about phishing attacks as a as a popular initial access vector a lot of email clients will use javascript because they have they have html or hta pages on there that are that are running javascript and these days JavaScript can spawn PowerShell, uh, you know, scripts. They can uh, spawn other types of scripts that are very powerful, that can create entire programs that are just as powerful as EXEs or what we call PE files, e executable files. Uh, and they're, you know, they give attackers full access to your system just by you browsing a website or maybe even having an email client uh, open and not opening the email, but just having that preview pane open because a website's being reached out to and code is running in JavaScript. Those are extreme examples, obviously, but it's kind of scary to know how powerful these attacks can possibly be. Yes, definitely, since if it's written in a language, which is operating system independence, it's usually easier for them to extend it in a way and make it available for more platforms in the end, because it's a multi-platform, it provides multi-platform capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy for an attack to like figure out if you're on a Windows platform, spawn PowerShell, if you're on a, a uh, Linux platform or a Mac platform, spawn Python, which is built into the operating systems. And all of a sudden, an attacker has access to everything they really need. Uh, and so it's super, super important to, you know, have the proper mitigation and security in place and patches in place and hopefully understand uh, what you're connecting to and what uh, what's happening on your systems. Indeed, indeed. With that being said, I think we had a, um, a great year for this podcast, Amar. We, I remember we started back in January and uh, it's already December again. Time flies so fast. And honestly, I can't wait for, for next year to follow up with more interesting podcasts around threats in cyber and have you back on the pod and come up with new topics. 
Well, it has definitely been an interesting year and we do live in interesting times, but I am looking forward, first of all, to taking some time off, enjoying my uh, my Christmas and my New Year's, not partying as much as I usually do because of uh, social distancing, but coming back strong next year to talk about all uh, all the interesting threats that we observe and how to stop them. Indeed. And to everyone who was listening all year long, thanks a lot as well. Stay safe and hopefully we catch up next year again.